Hey, it's great to be with you. My name's Will. I'm on staff here with the church. And if you are a guest with us this morning, as I frequently say, I hope I'm not the first person to welcome you, but welcome. Um, We're glad you're here. Um, And if there's anything I can do uh, after the service uh, to tell you about the church or to welcome you here, please come and find me because it would be great to meet you. Um, Now, if you brought a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn over to John chapter 4. And if you did not bring a Bible, we have plenty here. I would invite you to just raise your hand. You can read along with us in John chapter 4. We've got some people walking around. So if you don't have, the, have a Bible, raise your hand and take that. And if you do not have a Bible, that is our gift for, to you. So please take that home. And I would invite you to uh, read the rest of the book, actually, that we're going to be in this morning, John's Gospel, His Account of Jesus. Um, and so as you guys are turning over, Uh, to John chapter 4. I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer as we begin. Father, we come uh, to you together as a family this morning, um, and I can't even uh, move past uh, this this morning without just praying for our friends in France um, right now that as they are experiencing tragedy and just um, perplexed and experiencing suffering in a way that... um, many of us couldn't even comprehend. We just pray that um, you'd bring comfort to that region. Um, We pray that your church would be a beacon of hope in this hour. Um, And uh, we just pray that you would remind us all that this world is is broken and that that really our only hope is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Um, And so in that reality, we, we turn to him. We turn to you, Lord. And we come hungry for your word. Father, we thank you for your word, that it, that it has an ability to penetrate places deep within us that no one else can get to, that your word is sharp like a double-edged sword, and it can accomplish things in our life and change our life in a way that no one and nothing else can ever do, and so I pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, I pray that you would satisfy us. All of us have come here this morning thirsty, looking for satisfaction in a million different things, but I pray that you would press on us the reality that only you, only the true God can satisfy us. And so we ask that you'd be in our midst this morning and we pray all these things for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, John chapter 4. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing for the next couple weeks. Uh, Before we head into Advent, we're going to spend two weeks in John chapter 4. And it's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, the woman at the well. And and the two weeks, the way we're going to split this up, week one is going to be titled Worship That Satisfies. And then as we move into week two, we're going to discuss the relationship between that which we worship uh, being something that we naturally share with others. And so it's worship that satisfies, and then week two, worship that's shared. Um, And so I'm excited to dig in with this with you guys. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read, starting in verse 3 of John chapter 4, we're going to take a look at the woman at the well. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria, which was called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, 
and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I, don't have to, so I will not have to be thirsty and have to come back here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you have no, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Earlier this summer, uh, my wife uh, Chelsea and I were out on a little date night in Manassas and had a good time, hung out, and uh, we remembered while we were out that I needed to uh, pick up something from a local sporting goods store. Uh, I think it was some shorts or something like that, and so we went over to the local sporting goods store, and it was just a quick trip. Chelsea usually comes in with me to the sporting goods stores to make sure I don't come out with five new hobbies, and uh, I'll be in there like, hey, honey, like we should try, uh, I should pick up uh, wakeboarding, like Honey, you should pick up your shorts and get out. We're not, we're not doing that. So she, she came in with me, and we got what we needed, and we headed over to the uh, register. There was a long line, and while we were waiting, I noticed out of the, the corner of my eye uh, someone that I thought I recognized who was there uh, vacuuming and, and cleaning up one, one corner of the store. Um, and then as the line grew longer, this person who was vacuuming realized that, that she could go over to the register and pull some people over. So, so we went over to that register uh, where she was, and she's looking down and, and uh, you know, getting, getting everything ready to check us, up, check us out. And uh, she, she lifts up her eyes from, from the keyboard. We make eye contact. Her face goes blank. Her eyes go wide. And these are the words that came out of her mouth. Oh, No. It was at that moment that I realized I, I recognized this certain someone from my neighborhood. And while I don't know her real well, here's a couple things I do know about her. I know she works in Washington, D.C. with a very high-paying uh, job, a, a government contractor job. Uh, I know that she lives in a, in a nice house. I know that she drives a nice car. And so as we have this moment where we're not sure if we should uh, admit that we recognize one another, we're pressed with the question, what in the world are you doing here sweeping floors at this local sporting goods store? And we uh, had a few seconds where, where we weren't sure if we should acknowledge each other. Uh, and then she just immediately starts explaining, oh, my contract is just on a brief delay. I'm just here to get a little extra cash. Uh, it's not a big deal. Listen, if you could not tell my son that I'm here, I would really appreciate that. Um, 
And uh, at that moment, as we had this kind of awkward interaction, there, there were two things that struck me. The first was, I just felt terrible that she would even be embarrassed. Like, I don't care where you work. You do whatever you have to do to put food, food on the table. That's not a big deal. But, but the bigger thing that struck me at that moment, that what we were experiencing right there was an outright worship crisis. You may be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with worship? And if we define worship as what we do the 20 minutes before the preaching happens on Sunday morning, I guess it doesn't have anything to do with worship, but I don't think that's the biblical's definition of what worship is. The Bible defines uh, 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 worship as the, uh, you worship what you value most, and you value it most because you think it will satisfy you. And this was a worship crisis because we could see that my friend, what she valued most at that moment was the prestige of her job. And when that was taken from her, she felt terrible, embarrassed. She didn't even want to be recognized by another human being while she was working a job that she felt was beneath her. And certainly uh, being sad if you lost your job is fine, but, but, but feeling devalued as a human being because you're working a different job, that, that's a worship crisis. Because the thing that you look to for significance, the thing that you look to for meaning, the thing that you think will satisfy you, that, my friends, is what you worship. And I don't dare bring this up as something that people just outside of our church would deal with, but I actually think many of us in this room would have the exact same response. Given the high uh, capacity for, for high caliber jobs represented in this room, like people move to Fairfax to work. Like you're not here uh, for the efficient transfer, transportation or the southern hospitality. Like that's not why you came to Fairfax. You're, you're here to work. And, and in that, may, maybe you think that in your job you'll find value, you'll find uh, meaning, you'll find something that will finally satisfy you. And there may be others of you that are saying like, dude, I work in a sporting goods store. What in the world is wrong with that? Absolutely nothing is wrong with that, but I would venture to say for you, what you value most isn't your job. What you value most in worship, maybe that's a relationship. Either the one you have or the one that you long for. And you think if you just get that perfect soulmate, you'll finally be satisfied. Maybe for you, if we dug a little bit deeper, the thing that you think will satisfy you is the unhindered pursuit of every sexual fantasy your mind has conjured up. And maybe that takes the form of a computer screen or with a real person, but you think that the, uh, the, the, the full pursuit of that will satisfy you. Maybe it's money, getting the new thing. Maybe it's parenting, either being a good parent or at least being recognized as someone who has your kids in order. That's something that you value, that you look to for meaning, that you think will satisfy you. Maybe it's an addiction, a bottle, a pill, Maybe for some of you, it's cutting. And if that's not something that you look to for satisfaction, it's something that at least relieves the pain that you go through on a frequent basis. Beneath all of these pursuits is a longing to be satisfied. We worship what we value most because we think that thing will satisfy us. And we're all looking for deep, lasting fulfillment. Our worship is a pursuit of satisfaction. And here's the problem for every single one of us in this room. We all, across the board, worship and pursue things that ultimately cannot satisfy us. We all try to fill our lives with things that, that we continually think will fill us and finally give us meaning, but always let us down in the end. You could say that you and I share a drinking problem. 
We constantly drink from things that can, will ultimately just leave us thirsty, unsatisfied. And while the things that we look to in this room to, to, to meet that satisfaction may widely vary from jobs uh, to, to, to bottles to everything in between, there's one thing that unites all of our pursuits for satisfaction. And that one thing is an alienation from our Creator. We were made with longings that only find their fulfillment in the one that made us. And because we've rejected the one who can ultimately fill us, we're still looking for things to satisfy us. Those longings haven't gone away, even though we've rejected the one that they were made for. Jeremiah confronts this issue for the people of Israel. He says to them, be appalled at this. Be shocked, O heavens, for my people have, de- have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out for themselves cisterns that can't satisfy. So Jeremiah is saying that, that our vertical relationship with God has been thrown off, but in its place we pursue things that, to try to find that satisfaction, but they're broken. They can't hold water. They can't ultimately satisfy us. And so my hope for us this morning is that as a family, we would embrace the reality that there is nothing in this world that will ever be able to satisfy us and that we would put our hope for satisfaction on the one who made us. And to do that, we're going to look at one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, as we've already said, the woman at the well. And in this awesome story, um, we're, we're going to be, uh, we'll, just, we'll walk through it and, and we'll make a few observations along the way, a few things that stand out. And, and what I want you to see in this is that first in this story, we're going to see a Savior who crosses boundaries to satisfy. Secondly, we're going to see a satisfaction problem. And then lastly, we're going to see that our satisfaction problem is redeemed through true worship. So we'll see a Savior who crosses boundaries to satisfy a satisfaction problem, and that our satisfaction problem is redeemed through true worship. So let's dig right into this story. Starting in verse 3, we see Jesus traveling from Judea to Galilee, and and to do that, he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, Samaria ran right in between those two regions, and he had to uh, pass through in order to get to Galilee. And along the way, uh, being tired from the trip, he stops in Samaria at a very famous well uh, to get a drink of water, and he he sends his disciples off to get some food. And uh, as he's at the well, a woman from Samaria approaches him uh, by herself, and Jesus initiates a conversation with her. He says, ma'am, can you give me something to drink? The woman, we see right in there, is just shocked that, that he would request this. She says, sir, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a woman from Samaria, for something to drink? She's taken back, even dumbfounded by Jesus' request. And so it would serve us to ask the question, why is she so perplexed that Jesus would strike up this conversation with her? Why does this seem so out of line? And John is going to give us three reasons why this is really a crazy conversation. The first is that this woman is from Samaria and Jesus is a Jew. And though Jews and Samaritans lived in the same region, they were not particularly friendly neighbors. In fact, they hated one another. Some 700 years earlier, during the Assyrian Empire, they had invaded that particular area of Israel, and they had deported many of the Jews who were there and and sent in their place people from Samaria, and so they intermarried with the remaining people. And so at this point in John 4, you have this kind of mixed culture of Assyrian religion with some some Jewish religion kind of all mixed together right in the middle of Israel. And uh, right in the middle of that, you had a big clash. You had... uh, uh, 
ethnic, ethnic hatred, not much unlike what we see today in modern Israel. And I could give you more uh, historical stuff about why these groups hated one another, but there's a passage in Luke. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. It captures this uh, relationship perfectly. Um, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem talking about Jesus, and he sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. And this is what the disciples did. Listen to this. And when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Now, like some of you in this room may have some anger issues like road rage, whatever, like they rejected Jesus coming into their village and they resorted to divine arson. Um, (laughs) This is is outright ethnic hatred between between these two groups. Um, the, The Jews viewed Samaritans as racially inferior. Um... In fact, for a Jew to even come into contact with a Samaritan would have left him ceremonially unclean and unable to approach the temple. And so they couldn't stand being around each other, let alone have a friendly conversation about a drink of water. So that's the first reason why this is crazy. The second is that this is a woman and Jesus is a man. And not unlike modern day Middle Eastern culture, women were viewed as inferior. So for a man to just have a casual conversation with a woman in public, especially a prestigious rabbi like Jesus, to just carry on a conversation with a woman, that's just something you would never see. And, and the last reason why this conversation is so outlandish is given with some clues that, that John shows us through the chapter. Um, and he it, it does it first by telling us the time of day. He says it's the sixth hour, which would mean it would have been right around noon, the hottest point of the day. And people didn't go to the well to get water in the heat of the day. They would normally go in groups when it was cool out. And so given the hour and the fact that she's by herself and what we learn about her relationship status later in the chapter, um, it's, it, it, she's the town outcast. She, she is looked down upon by everyone there. Even in her own pagan Samaritan culture, she's viewed as an outcast. She's literally the town tramp, known for using her body with men to get the things that she wants. She's the kind of woman that people would turn away their children from when she walked down the street. She was a complete moral outcast. And, and to pull you into the absurdity of this story even further... It says in parentheses that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. But what's crazy about the word no dealings in Greek can also mean they, share, they wouldn't share a common vessel. So Jesus is approaching this woman, this moral outcast, and is asking to use the same container that she drinks from for himself. That would be equivalent. I was trying to think of even what would be on par on this. If you're in D.C. and just say like a, a well-known congressman was out for a run, as everybody does in D.C., there's always people running. And, and while he's running, he got tired, noticed a homeless person, went up and asked if he could use his water bottle and took a drink from it. Like that, that's just something we wouldn't see. And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. Um, but we see that Jesus isn't afraid to push past every social barrier and get right down into her world. He's drinking from the same container. He's not grossed out by her. He's not put off by her. He simply loves her. Even though she's a part of a group that Jews viewed as subhuman, even though she's a woman, and even though she's a complete moral outcast, the Savior Jesus Christ couldn't care less about any of that. 
He'll literally cross every boundary to get to his people. Even when we resist, even when we don't want him, he crosses through everything to find his people. Now, hear me, this is so important for some of you to get because you may be gathered with us this morning thinking to yourself, I'm not the type of person that Jesus would associate himself with. Jesus looks for those of strong moral character, doing positive things with their life, or those who really have their stuff together. But the woman at the well blows that idea up. The one thing we can say about the type of person that Jesus is looking for is that there is not a type of person that Jesus is looking for other than the fact that they're broken and they need him. And so you may be thinking to yourself, man, I'm glad that some people happen to find some sort of meaning for their life in Christianity, but I'm just not that type of person. I'm the outcast, I'm divorced, I'm an addict, I'm gay. Whatever it is, fill in the blank of whatever reason it is you think that would stop Jesus from coming to you, he will, his love will literally blow past any obstacle set before him. Don't be confused. He never meets a person without completely changing their life, but he's the kind of savior that simply will not be stopped as he approaches his people. So the first point is that we have a a savior that crosses boundaries, but we see that he crosses boundaries to satisfy. He says to her, uh, ask her for a drink of water, and she gets a little freaked out, like, sir, are you serious? Are you really going to ask me for a drink? And he flips the question on her and, and, and goes on to say, if you knew who I was and the gift of God to you, you would have asked me for living water. She clearly doesn't get it. She kind of responds a little bit sarcastically and says, Sir, you don't have anything to hold water, um, and the well is deep. How, how is this going to work? And what he's doing here is describing living water that will satisfy the depths of your soul, and she's totally missing him. She, so he presses a little further and says, Ma'am, the water in this well, it satisfies you for a moment, but it leaves you returning day after day after day, still thirsty. Jesus is saying, I've got a kind of water that that will satisfy your soul and eradicate thirst forever. Drink from the water that I have and you'll never thirst again. The water I have becomes like a spring of, of water that wells up within you that leads to eternal life. Jesus is trying to get her mind off of the well that's in front of them and is using the well that's in front of them as a metaphor for soul satisfaction. Jesus is saying, I have something that is as essential to you spiritually as this water is to you physically. He's inviting her to find the satisfaction of her soul in him. He's showing that I'm a savior that has crossed extraordinary boundaries, but I do it to satisfy you. I've got something that's essential to your soul. I've got something that truly fills you. It's free and it leads to eternal life. I'm a savior that crosses boundaries to satisfy you. And so she responds in the way that many of us probably would. She'd say, great, I'm a little sick of running here day after day to get water. What you're selling sounds pretty good and I'll try anything at least once. Give me some of this water, um, let me, let me try this, and we see the story from here take a pretty odd twist. Um, Jesus seems to change the subject on her at this moment. He says, uh, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. 
So things just got a little bit uncomfortable in this friendly conversation. They just got a little bit awkward. Why is Jesus changing the subject from discussing her relationship status in the middle of this conversation about soul satisfaction um, to, to, to talking about her relationship status? Why is he changing the subject? And the answer is he's not changing the subject at all. He's saying, listen, I can satisfy you, but first we need to confront the thing that you're currently looking to for satisfaction. Which brings us to our next point that all of us, our next observation, all of us have a satisfaction problem. The issue is not just that we need to be told to find our satisfaction in God. The issue is that we would prefer to find satisfaction in anything else. We were created with longings that only find their fulfillment in an infinitely glorious God. And even though we've been alienated from God in our sin, we still have to fill those longings. And so we worship and pursue things to try to ease that. And so Jesus is saying to her, listen, I can satisfy you, but you've spent your whole life looking for satisfaction in men. If you would turn to me and make me the object of your worship, you'd be filled right now. But right now at this moment, you're worshiping the man you live with. He's saying, if you would turn to me and make me the object of your worship, I'd fill you. And the reality that you're on to your sixth man ought to communicate the fact that that they can't satisfy you. Time after time, you look to men to satisfy you, but they keep letting you down. And we have to realize at at this moment this morning that even though we might not look to the same things as this woman does, we all look for something other than God as the object of our worship to satisfy our soul's longings. But none but him will ever do. As Augustine prayed, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And so we run on this endless cycle of trying to fill our lives with things that can't ultimately satisfy, only to be disappointed in the end and to try something new, thinking, maybe this time, maybe this time I'll be satisfied, and we're still searching and still uh, restless. And so in the middle of this conversation about, uh, about living water, he's pressing into the things that we pursue other than him that can't satisfy us. And so maybe it would serve us to ask this simple question, why can none other but God himself satisfy us? And I think the answer to that question is that nothing besides God himself is big enough to meet our soul's longings. Everything else offers a promise of satisfaction, but in the end always falls short. So let me give you an example of how this plays out for us. We start in high school and we're saying, man, this life stage really sucks. You know what? If I could just get to college, uh, you know, out from under my parents, then everything would be good. And then we get to college. It's good for a little while. Everything's great. And then we start saying, man, I'm getting a little sick of dorm life. And if only my roommates weren't so irresponsible or if only I had a real job in an apartment, then everything would be good. I'd be, I'd be full at that moment. And so we move on to that next life stage. We, we get the apartment. We get the job that we've been waiting for. And uh, after a while, we say, man, the, the job is good, but if only my commute wasn't, wasn't as bad. Um, or if only my boss had more realistic expectations. And so uh, if only I got that promotion, then I would finally be satisfied. So we get the promotion, we're on to the next thing, and we are in this endless cycle of looking for satisfaction only to be let down every single time. Or we do it with our relationships. We'll start off, um, you know, just saying, if only I had a, the, the, that boyfriend or girlfriend um, that, that, that really could, uh, you know, walk with me through life, everything would be good. 
And so we, man, singleness is terrible, and if only I had that relationship, I'd I'd be good. And so we get that that boyfriend or girlfriend, it doesn't work out, and we move on to the next one. If only I could find the perfect spouse. If only I could find the perfect soulmate. Then Then I would be good, I'd be filled, life would be okay. We get married within a short period of time. We start saying, man, if only my spouse listened to me, or if only they performed better in bed, I'd finally be satisfied. And so we pursue other things, possibly through a computer screen or through other people. And we're on this endless cycle thinking, if I just get that right relationship, I'll finally be filled. Or we do it with our stuff also. In high school, we say, man, if only I had uh, four wheels and a radio, I'd be good to go. Everything would be fine. And so we get that car, we roll with it for a while, uh, then we need the one uh, with leather seats, or we need the one with the Bluetooth capabilities, and we're on cars.com for hours looking for that perfect car that's finally going to have everything we need, and the 2016 model has it, that'll be the one that, that I finally am looking for and am satisfied in, and we get it, and within months we're on to the next one. Augustine, um, from uh, about the... Uh, 5th century had a perfect quote that captured this reality. He says this, there's an important difference between temporal and eternal things. Something temporal is loved more before it's possessed, but will lose its appeal when it's attained. For it does not satisfy the soul whose true and certain abode is eternity. The eternal, on the other hand, is loved more passionately when it's obtained than when it was desired. So he's saying as you pursue stuff, just things in the material world, when you get them, you have a lot of excitement before, but as soon as you get it, that desire for it always decreases after you have it. But when it relates to with God, we we begin with lower expectations that that he can really satisfy us. We, We begin to meet him and are satisfied all the more and our desire for him only increases. And so he's, he's drawing the distinction between these two things. And so I think what Jesus is doing in this story is like a skilled surgeon. He's pressing into that thing that she's worshiping to remove it from the center of her soul so that it can be replaced with this living water that he's describing. Like a, like a skilled counselor, he's trying to identify her satisfaction problem at the well and, and, and address it so she can truly be satisfied. And so I think as it relates to us this morning, we need to remember that none of us are exempt from this satisfaction problem. We all worship things that will ultimately leave us empty. So, so do this. What if you could put your place in the woman of the well? What if you could put your place where the woman of the well is in this conversation with Jesus? As he says to her, go call your husband. I can satisfy you, but go call your husband. If he came to you and said, I've got living water for you, but go find your fill in the blank. What would it be for you? You're in the middle of this uh, conflict between two promises and only one of them is true. On, on the one hand, we have things of this world, material things that promise to satisfy us that always seem to let us down. But on the other side, we have God saying, I can meet the longings of your soul and satisfy you. Which promise will you choose to believe? I think it would be pretty silly to say once we're a Christian, we just wake up in the morning and perpetually go through the day just with longings to be satisfied in God. We all try to find uh, uh, things that, that, that will satisfy other than him. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. And do you know what makes this even more difficult for us as Christians? Is that the things that we look to for ultimate satisfaction aren't normally outright evil things. They're normally good things or morally neutral things that we think will, that we, we set as the ultimate aim of our life and, and think that they'll satisfy us. 
So as, as a follower of Jesus, it's not clear, normally immoral things, but, but often just morally neutral things that we look to for satisfaction. So we take our kids and say, man, if I could only get them in order, if I could only uh, get them to behave and, and, and be able to sit through a, a, a one meal out together, um, if only I could do that, we'd be fine. And there's nothing wrong with wanting your kids to behave, but when that becomes the central focus of your life, I think we're, we're stepping out of bounds with that. Or we can take the affirmation of people uh, wanting approval. And there's certainly nothing wrong with wanting to be liked. It's just when wanting to be liked becomes the ultimate aim of our life. Maybe it's a house or a car or a promotion or whatever it is, fill in the blank. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But is it the ultimate aim in your life? If I can be real honest with you guys, what I find myself often doing, as many of you know, we're in the process of planting a church out where we live in Manassas. And we're super excited about that. And, and we can't wait to see that, that come together. But do you know what I begin to do when I'm in the middle of a hard day or I'm, I'm frustrated or I'm dissatisfied? I begin to say, man, once that church gets planted and I'm fi- we're finally over there, then everything will be good. Then, then everything will be fine. And I begin to make planting a church the ultimate aim of my life rather than finding satisfaction in God. Does God want to plant churches? Absolutely. He just wants us to love him as the aim of our life above anything else. And so what is it for you? It's never wrong to want a job, a house, a spouse, or any other ambition, but has that thing become ultimate in your life other than Christ? Man, I pray that the Lord would be pressing on that area this morning. That he he would press on that and that you'd be willing to offer that up to him. Maybe he's addressing this satisfaction problem so that it can meet its solution, which brings us to our last point in this story. Jesus came to redeem our satisfaction problem with true worship. He came to redeem our satisfaction problem with true worship. So what's true worship? True worship, my friends, is being satisfied in the very person of God. It's placing the deepest longings of our soul on the one who made us. And that's exactly what Jesus came to enable us to do. We said at the outset that we were made for this purpose of finding our our satisfaction in God, but in our sin, we've been alienated from God and left chasing empty things that can't fill us. So friends, Jesus has come to reunite us to the very person that can satisfy us. He's come to bring us back to true worship. And we'll see it as this conversation continues to unfold. Right as he's pressing on the husband issue, she begins to change the subject to a common worship controversy of their day. She acknowledges, wow, this guy has supernatural knowledge. He must be some kind of prophet. And and right when they begin to deal with the real heart issue, the thing she really is worshiping and finding her satisfaction in, she starts to drift. She says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet, but our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship. So right in the middle of this wonderful conversation about where she finds her satisfaction, she brings up this religious external controversy. She's like, man, I can tell this guy's really spiritual. Let me bring up an issue of debate. And I don't know if she has a legitimate question about that issue of debate or if she's just trying to steer the conversation away from her real heart issue. Um, but, but she brings up this issue. And so Jesus acknowledges the religious controversy, but, but he brings it back to the real issue at hand. He brings it back to true worship. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
He acknowledges, yes, there's a disagreement between me and you about mountains and temples, and, and it is good for you to know that salvation is coming from the Jews, but, but can we move past that? Can I tell you something far better than temples and mountains? I can offer you soul-satisfying worship. In this discussion, the woman was interested in talking about these religious rituals, and Jesus is saying the hour is coming when all of that stuff will be obsolete. You won't need the temple. You won't need sacrifices. You won't need a special mountain because all of your uncleanness that necessitated those things will be done away with. And besides, the, the temple and those rituals and ordinances were really just pointing to Jesus anyway. Those things were shadows, but standing right in front of her was the substance. What was exhibited to the, in the Old Testament to the, to the ancestors was, was exhibited in figures and shadows, but, but now openly in front of her is Jesus. So I think he's saying, can we move past those rituals and get to the heart of it? Let's talk about true worship. Let me tell you about the kind of worshiper the Father is looking for. He's looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, if you've been in the church for a little while, you've probably heard this phrase thrown around frequently, worshiping in spirit and truth. And I would suspect maybe it's left you a little bit confused. Um, we, we often think of worship as the time of singing before the preaching. And so uh, you've probably heard that if we're going to worship in spirit, in spirit, then we need to have a high emotional experience. And we need to be very expressive. Like worshiping in spirit means being really excited when you worship. And, and to worship in truth, well, that means to be really vulnerable or really honest before the Lord, to come to him just as we are. And we'll even use these kinds of things as like categories for people in the church. We'll be like, well, there are those who worship with a lot of experience and emotion and are very excited through their worship. And on the other side, you have Bible people with like a high regard for truth. And we'll be like, we need to bring these two realities together and, and let, that, let our worship encompass that. And I hope that both of those things encompass our time of singing, but I don't think that's what Jesus is after here. I think what Jesus is trying to explain to us here is that God is not looking for people who worship by external rituals and tradition. He's looking for people who worship a person. The Father is after a people who find the ultimate satisfaction of their souls in the very person of God. And I think that because when John uses the word spirit in his Gospels, he, he's not uh, describing an emotional experience or uh, a mysterious figure from an unseen realm. He's talking about a person. He's describing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Jesus hits on this as he's preparing to depart and he's with his disciples. When he's describing the Holy Spirit, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. He will be with you. He dwells with you. He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so I think when Jesus is, is describing the Spirit, this is the one he's talking about. He's saying, I'm not going to leave you alone, but I'm going to be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and truth, I don't think, is a uh, description of us being honest or a philosophical proposition. In John's gospel, truth, the truth is a person. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
And so in this phrase of worshiping in spirit and truth, I don't think we're being told to have emotional, uh, worshiping an emotion or an honesty, but we're being invited into an encounter with a real person. We're being invited into an encounter with the living God. True worshipers are those who find their satisfaction in God himself. The Father is looking for those who worship in this, in, in his, by the power of the Spirit and through the person of Jesus Christ. To worship in spirit and truth means that the Holy Spirit literally mediates the presence of Jesus to us. He brings us into an intimate encounter, creating an experience with him. And it's in this encounter that the human thirst for our creator is satisfied. Maybe you're still saying like, man, that that still sounds a little bit confusing. Like, how does it actually work to worship in spirit and truth? What What does that actually mean? One, one pastor, Tim Keller, uh, said this. He said, the job of the Holy Spirit is to take the things that Jesus did on your behalf and to teach them to you and to remind them to you. And so as you receive a particular truth about the person or work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit enlightens that truth inside of you and makes it beautiful to you. It's comparable to, 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 to like a light bulb going off inside of you. So like if you were to go to Washington, D.C. tonight at, at 2 in the morning, it would be dark everywhere, but you could look up and see beautiful structures all over the place because when the builders of those structures put them up, they put lights on them so that even in the dark, you would be able to see these awesome uh, works of architecture, these awesome buildings. So they shine the light on something that's beautiful and reveal it to you. And I, I think that's, that, that's what's happening here as we describe worshiping in spirit and truth. So in the same way, when you hear about the love of Jesus, the spirit enlightens that inside of you and causes you to delight in it. Or when you hear about the justice of God satisfied through Jesus on the cross, the spirit enlightens that and makes you delight in that justice. Or when you sing of the grace of Jesus and, and, and this, the Spirit reminds you of how that grace has changed your life and you're left delighting in Him for it. Or when you're opening your Bible and you read a very simple truth, maybe you've read it a hundred times, and the Spirit makes that simple reality about God precious to you. I think this is what it looks like to worship in spirit and truth. And it's right here, my friends, that we have the remedy to our satisfaction problem. As we seek after Jesus, the Holy Spirit illuminates to him and we encounter God and we're satisfied. Like we said from the beginning, we've been cut off from the one we were made to be satisfied in, but Jesus has come to bring us back to him. So we can say that, so we can truly be satisfied in true worship in the person of God. So I guess we should ask the question, how is Jesus going to go about doing this? How is Jesus going to accomplish this? Well, the, the use of the word hour here is very significant. He says the hour is coming when uh, we'll be able to worship in spirit and truth. And through John's gospel, when he says hour, he's not talking about a time of day. He's talking about the moment of Jesus' death. That critical moment in history when God's son would die, bearing the punishment for yours and my sin so that we could, our debt to God could be paid and that we could be reconciled back to him. Jesus redeems our satisfaction problem by forgiving us and bringing us back to the only one who can satisfy us. He's, he's come to pay the debt of sin that alienates us from God, and he's come to reunite us to the one for whom our soul longs, the God of the universe. 
And so as it pertains to this woman's question about this worship controversy, there's, there's no more special mountains, there's no more temples or sacrifices because Jesus himself is the place where we meet God. The hour is coming and is now here where through his death we'll be able to worship in spirit and truth and find the satisfaction of our soul in the very person of God. And this, brothers and sisters, is where our satisfaction problem is remedied. Jesus has come to reunite us with God. So where does this then leave us this morning? Where do we, where do we take this from here? I, I don't want to be overly simplistic, but I think the call of God on us this morning is simply to worship Jesus Christ. I hope that the Lord is able to do some diagnostics on you this morning and point out where you may be pursuing empty satisfaction, but just identifying that thing is not enough. The call of God on this this morning is to turn from that thing that will never satisfy us and to take up in its place the worship of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about worship, we mean way more than what what we do here on Sunday morning. We're talking about living a life that's in pursuit of finding delight in God. We're talking about our affection and adoration for Jesus being the central reality of our lives. And I think when we uh, are are pursuing this, this is what spirit and truth looks like. And so uh, what if we ask this simple question? What can I build into my day-to-day rhythm that will cause me to delight in the person of God? As another pastor put it, um, what can I build into my life that will stir up my affections for Jesus Christ? How can I position myself under this fountain of living water that Jesus is describing and find satisfaction in him? I think when we start answering that question, we're moving towards worshiping in spirit and truth and finding our satisfaction in God. I think that would be an excellent question to bring to your next community group. To just to begin to discuss together, hey, what do you guys do? To, what do you build into your life that helps you to, to delight in God and to pursue him as a person? What does that look like for you? How do you build things into your life that stir up your affections and find satisfaction in God? I think under this category, we could talk about Bible reading and prayer and, and eagerly showing up on Sunday morning ready to, to worship. But, but all of these things aren't simply a checklist that we check off and go about the rest of our day. Like we're doing them so that we meet and have this soul-satisfying encounter with God. He's the one that our souls long for. He's the one in whose presence there is fullness of joy. He's the one who's the bread of life. He's this uh, living water that leaves us to thirst no more. He's the only one who can satisfy the longings of our soul. If you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, I've got to set this aside and talk to you for a second. There may be some of you, as you hear me describing, having a love for God is like the central reality of, of, of your life and you're just not there, and, and my invitation to you would be, if that's the case, please come and spe- continue to spend time with us. E- even if you're not there, um, come and spend time with us and ask the question, what is it about God that makes him so valuable to this group of people? But I wonder if there's others of you gathered with us this morning where either you're not a Christian, maybe you were raised in the church and you've left for a while, but you've recently come to a moment in your life where something that you were looking to for satisfaction has let you down. 
Maybe that's a relationship. Maybe that's going off to college. Maybe that's a job. I I don't know what it is, but you're in a place right now where something in your life has let you down. Something that you were really looking to to satisfy you. Might you be in a unique posture this morning to hear the voice of God calling out to you, declaring, only I can satisfy you. Only I can meet the deepest longings of your soul. And there's an invitation to you to come to Jesus Christ and to take up the worship of him so that just like this woman, you can leave and never thirst again like you do in this moment. And do you want to know why you'll never thirst again? There's two moments in John's gospel where he describes the sixth hour. The first is here with the woman at the well. The pastor pointed this out for me. The second is when Jesus is being nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers. And do you know what Jesus cried out on the sixth hour of that day? He cried out, I thirst. Jesus was in excruciating pain. He was bearing the wrath of God for your sin and physically exhausted and dehydrated. And he was thirsty in that moment so you would never have to be. And there's an invitation for you to come to him this morning. And maybe your first act of worship is simply to trust him. To trust the reality that he died for your sin so that you can be reconciled to God and find satisfaction of your soul. If you're in that place, don't leave here this morning without coming, without praying to God, telling him that, or coming to talk with me or or any of our other leaders. We would love to talk to you about that. In a moment, we're going to come forward and take communion. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, uh, I would ask that you would just hang out in your seat during this time. And the reason for that is that when we come forward to take communion, we're declaring that we believe that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. But if you don't believe that, then this is just an empty meal for you. But this time doesn't have to be passive for you if you're not a Christian. I would invite you to pray during this time. If there's something that's been said that's, that's been stern in you, to take that to God. And feel free to come and talk to me about that afterwards. But for the rest of us, we're going to come forward to take communion. And we've uh, got two stations in the back and two in the front. Whenever you're ready, come forward. Don't feel like you have to rush up. If you need to hang out in your seat for a little bit and just do some business with the Lord, feel free to do that and then come to the table. But when we come to the table, we're declaring that Jesus Christ died so that we could be reconciled to God in true worship and find ultimate satisfaction. So that's why he's came. And so let's celebrate that together as we come to the table. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you're the only one who can satisfy us. You're the only one who can fill us. I and all of us in this room are so prone to run after a thousand other things that can never fill that longing. My prayer in this moment is that you would convict us of that, that you would show us what that is and that uh, you would invite us in um, to to experience true worship. And I just pray as a church family that you would uh, work in us to begin to build into our day-to-day routine just things we can do to find satisfaction in you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you died so that we could be reconciled to you. As we come forward to this meal, we celebrate that reality. So we just thank you for this time and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.